Okay. 2 Samuel 7. Let's talk about legacy for a minute. Okay. Most of us, when we get to a, a certain age, we begin to think about leaving some kind of a legacy, leaving something behind us that will live longer than us. Um, presidents of the United States have many avenues for leaving legacies. One, uh, maybe through some kind of the legislation, but uh, through one way, one means of that, is, was established in 1955 by the Presidential Libraries Act. Okay? Um, this act established a system of libraries operated and maintained by the National Archives and Records Administration. In the beginning of 2016, uh, 13 presidential libraries are maintained by that group, and they contain over, listen to some of these facts, they contain over 400 million pages of printed material, about 10 million photographs, over 15 million feet of motion picture film, and nearly 100,000 hours of audio and video recordings. Interesting. I read, um, uh, just kind of, because I know uh, President Obama is in the process of building his, they think it will cost a billion and a half to get that thing together in, in uh, Chicago. So it's interesting that presidents are very interested in leaving behind a legacy. It's natural to want to leave our mark in the earth in some lasting way, some way that will, will live on beyond us. And certainly for a great leader, that's true. We're going to talk today about King David. Uh, he himself had a plan as how he was going to leave a legacy behind. Um, but it's interesting that he goes, uh, he begins to put together a plan, and God had a different plan in mind. And actually, God's plan, I know this is going to shock you, God's plan was a lot better than David's plan. Is that shocking to you? Um, let me give you just a little bit of background. Now, for the last couple of weeks, we've talked about covenant relationships in the Old Testament, we talked about uh, with Abraham, we, we talked the last two weeks about um, the Sinaitic covenant um, in, uh, at, at, the, at the base of Mount Sinai with Moses and uh, the people of, of Israel in the wilderness. Well, fast forward 500 years or so, and we're going to talk today about the time of King David to consider another covenant that God made, this one with what Acts 13 calls a man after God's own heart. Now, I love the fact that it wasn't David who said, I'm a man after God's own heart. It wasn't Solomon, his son, who said that, or Rehoboam, his son's son, who said that. It was somebody way after his life uh, who said, David is a man after God's own heart. Now, um, David was in really ordinary surroundings when Samuel, the great prophet, the great judge, uh, he was kind of, kind of prophet and judge and priest all wrapped into one. Samuel comes to Bethlehem to find the successor to King Saul. Uh, God has said, King Saul's, uh, this isn't going well, and he, he, we, won't we will not establish the kingdom in his line. And so uh, Samuel goes to look for a successor, and he arrives at the house of a man by the name of Jesse who has eight sons. Seven of them are brought to the prophet Samuel to offer as a great example of leadership and uh, anoint this my son for leadership. And every time God and Samuel both say, no, I don't think so. And Samuel finally says, is there another one? 
almost as an afterthought. Jesse, the father, says, well, there's David. You know, I, that's, by the way, the story of most of my life, okay? What did do? Steve, you? okay. Right. <laughs> Becky, you and I talked about that this morning, didn't we? Uh, and David is anointed then, the successor to King Saul, and after, um, after uh, David wasn't involved in this, but after Saul's son Ishbosheth was murdered, the way became clear for David to become king. He be begins to be the king over the, um, the tribe of Judah, which is his own tribe, and he's 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 king over them for about seven and a half years. And then when Ishbosheth dies, he becomes uh, king of the whole nation. He conquers. Uh, David, with his own hand, with his own army, conquers the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem was not the city of Jerusalem before David. It was the city of Jebus, where the Jebusites hung out, which were kind of bad fellows. And David, uh, they said, you're not coming in here. And David said, hide and watch. And he, he conquers Jerusalem, moves the Ark of the Covenant uh, there to uh, Jerusalem in the tabernacle. He kind of is able in his lifetime to subdue the Philistines that had been a problem for the Israelites for generation after generation. So there's kind of a time of peace that ensues. But while all those achievements militarily and kind of geographically were steps David took to solidify his reign, what we're going to look at today records what God did to solidify that reign that was unlike anything that David could ever have imagined. Think about that just for a minute. Steve Blair, are you, are you rehearsing? You, are you tuning up over there? Mm -hmm. Okay, wake him up, Mom. I need him to read. Would you read the first six verses of seven? John, can I prevail on you to go to the next book to the right and go to 1 Kings 9, verse 1. We'll get there in just a minute, all right? What, what's the action involved here is that King Hiram of Tyre, um, after David gets established, says, hey, man, we got to build you a palace. And so he sends not only cedar logs over there to accomplish that, which was um, the, the building material of choice, he also sends stonemasons and workmen and uh, building supervisors. And literally, so you've got, you've got a, another country, another uh, kind of principality who's building a house for David, building him a palace. Now, the word that's translated in verse 1 as palace is really kind of a common word in the Old Testament, but it's the same word used here uh, and, and used also uh, in what John's getting ready to read to describe both Solomon's house 
and God's house. Uh, would you read sec, uh, First Kings? I'm sorry, nine one. Now, if you're reading that from another translation, it might say when Solomon had finished building his house and God's house. Same word here that is translated in some of our Bibles at least, palace for David. Uh, so it's the idea that, that kind of a neighboring king is going to build David a house. Um, uh, now it's interesting, I think at least, um, if, if you read in, in context, I wish we had time today, but if you really scanned chapter 6 and, and, and 7 both, and, and even chapter 5, what you're going to realize is there's a pattern of, of activity going on here. David acts in faithfulness to God, and God is faithful right back to David. Um, maybe you could argue that God shows his faithfulness to David, and David responds in kind. Uh, there's kind of that pattern of things. Uh, it's just kind of wonderful to see how a magistrate is involved, a king is involved in the faithful times. And God really establishes his kingdom because of that. Now, in verse 2, what is David's concern? Uh, okay, uh, simply put, and well put, Karen, he's got a house, God doesn't. By the way, there's another character introduced here. He's going to factor in uh, later and not in parts that we'll, we'll look at during this study. But Nathan, the preacher, is involved here. David calls him in and says, uh, he's kind of thinking out loud, wait a minute, why do I have a house and God doesn't? Um, it's it's kind, of, kind of his musing here. I live in a fine house, we could argue a palace. God and the ark, he mentions the ark. They had kind of this thought, <clears throat> I don't fully understand this. You'd have to talk to somebody smarter than me to kind of fully understand this. But the Ark of the Covenant had what in it? Had a, had a jar of manna, had Aaron's rod that budded, that represented some of the miracles that took place in, uh, in Egypt. And what else? Moses' stones. The stones, stone tablets, Ten Commandments. But it also had a mercy seat, a seat of gold over this overlaid box that they carried all through the wilderness. And the mercy seat box had two golden angels hovering over it. And they really believed that, and that stayed in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle of God. And they really believed that it represented the presence of God with the people of Israel. Here's what I don't quite understand. Did they really think God was in that box? And I don't think they did, but it represent, represented, this is God's place, this is God's house. Now, one of the things you and I've got to think about is when I come to crossings, even though there's a cross in the front, okay, and there's a cross tower outside, and we hear about Jesus, and we hear about God every week, and I'm so glad we do. God doesn't live here. Have I burst anybody's bubble? Okay. Marty pretty well lives here, okay? I mean, he's here a lot of times. A lot of the staff is here. Some of you as volunteers probably feel like you live here. But God doesn't really live here, but he's here every time we're here. Have you caught that? Is that kind of a mystery to you like it is to me? 
I've worked in churches all my adult life. And everywhere I've been, it's very interesting that God doesn't live in the building. But it's funny to me that when I show up there, I find him there. That could be somewhat of an explanation of what's going on here. David says God is in a tent. And it, he's got this idea that he'll build him a house. Um, so, uh, God deserves better. Verse 3, Nathan's initial reaction is to agree. Sounds good to me. He's the king after all, right? Uh, and, and it's interesting, if you look at the, the last part of verse 3, Part of Nathan's rationale is it's been clear to him, and you can read it in, in chapter 5, you can read it in chapter 6. Part of the reason Nathan says, sounds good to me, is because he acknowledges the last phrase of verse 3. What does Nathan acknowledge? God is with you. If God is with you, then this must be the right thing to do. So sure, he kind of, Gives him his agreement. Now, look at verse 4 and 5. Because I believe that even though David and Nathan both had, both had good things in their heart, I really believe that Nathan's words of approval were his own, not God's. Okay? Um, I, I, I really believe that. Uh, what, what we've got to deal with here, let, let's read verse 4 and 5 again, okay? But in the night, same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I've not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Now we'll get to verse seven in a minute. It's not included in, in our study for today, but I, want, but I want to refer to it. Basically what you've got to understand here, I think what you and I have to understand here is that this is not, okay, this is not like a local uh, televangelist that I read about in the last several months who had about 200,000 followers and he asked for all, every one of his 200,000 followers to send him a check for 300 bucks because he needed a new Gulf Stream. I'm not mentioning the name, you probably recognize the name. Amen. Okay, right, it, you used to work for Gulfstream, didn't you? You get that, okay. Uh, the issue is, it's kind of, and by the way, when I read the story, it just kind of turns my stomach when this preacher says, um, God, God wants to bless me with a $65 million airplane. And you're supposed to send part of your Social Security check to help me do it. That should disturb us, shouldn't it? This is not that. This is a good thing that's in the heart of a king and the heart of a pastor, we could say, to say, a preacher, to say, you know what, it makes sense to me that God is, is in a 500-year-old tent. And I got a new palace. Nonetheless, this was kind of David's plan, not God's plan. Nathan speaks, uh, in, in my words, Nathan kind of speaks off the cuff, in haste. Uh, okay, 
Your intentions are really good. Now, I want us to go to a place where it, this is, we're going to fast forward a few years, probably 30. Solomon is going to build a temple that David wanted to build. So go with me two books to the right. Actually, three books to the right. Four books to the right. Second Chronicles. Six, eight. If somebody gets there first, you'll win the, um, the, the sword drill. Okay? Um, here's what Solomon says about what God thinks of what Solomon's dad, David, had in his heart. Second Chronicles 6, 8. Somebody read that? God say, David, this is stupid. No. According to Solomon, who was wise, knew God, he says, God says, this is a good thing you wanted to do. But the issue was, and go back to verse 6 on your outline, okay? Housing has never been high on God's priority list. He says, God says, I'm good. I rather like camping. Okay? Don't really need a house. But if I did, David, this is not for you to build. He commends him for it, but then he moves on. I think it's kind of a wonderful thing. This is not for you to do. Um, uh, God is not interested. This is beautiful to me. Uh, go with me one book to the right. 1 Kings 8.16 kind of helps us with it. 1 Kings 8.16. God says it here in a different way than he does where we are in, in 2 Samuel. 1 Kings 8.16. This is going to be a few pages to the right. Since the day that I brought my people Israel from Egypt, I did not choose a city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. He's not interested in a place. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. If I'm David's son, Solomon, who is hearing this, I'm swelling with pride. A, a good kind of godly pride. The idea is God is not interested in a place. He's interested in a man, in a leader. Okay, so let's go forward in the story. Um, there is going to be, um, uh, God is going to begin to talk about how David got in the position he got in. Uh, Cindy Blair, I'm going to read verse 7, and then I'm going to ask you to read 8, 9, and 10. In verse 7, it's interesting to me, in verse 7, God kind of finishes this thought here, um, and, and he says, um, what, wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? And that's a rhetorical question put in the mouth of God. What's God saying? Did I ask you to do this? Did I ever ask you? Did any of you, did I ever ask any of you to do this? I just find that kind of an interesting question to kind of hold over here. Cindy, do you mind read 8, 9, and 10?
really beautiful here. But I want you to read something. David had been, I want you to hear something. David had been faithful as a shepherd working for his dad, Jesse. But it wasn't that David worked himself into the position of king. You're really good with that job. Let's, uh, let's give you a mid-management job. See how you do with that. None of that going on. Well, I'm going to read from Psalm 78, which was not written by David, by the way. Um, uh, Psalm 78, I'm going to read verse 70 down through 72. This is kind of a synopsis of how David came to be king. He also chose, this is verse 70, he also chose, God also chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From the care of ewes with suckling lambs, he brought them to shepherd Jacob, his people. Isn't that beautiful? So poetic. And Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherds them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with skillful hands. But wouldn't you love something like that to be written on your tombstone? What a legacy. Basically, he's saying here, uh, God is really clear that it, it is he, God, who made David great, not David himself. Now, in verse 9, uh, we kind of get the idea that David has become great uh, because the Lord was with him. Uh, I just thought of a couple of things that are, that are really interesting here. First, his enemies were defeated. All his enemies were defeated. Remember, the Philistines were kind of sent back out by the sea, and they didn't bother him during David's lifetime anymore much. Uh, second, he was given a great name. Now, uh, it's interesting to me, uh, at least. Um, he says, I'll cut off your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name. Now, let's think about this for just a minute. Did David receive in his lifetime and thereafter a great name? What do you think? We're still talking about him. And if we're talking about a great leader in history, we say, David, or think King, say King David, don't we immediately go to this particular guy? I did some study. I thought I was going to be all you know high and mighty about this. And uh, uh, you remember the Camp David Accords? Yeah. Okay, remember that that great peace treaty that you know? Boy, we're still having trouble with that. But it was in its day, and I got to thinking about okay, maybe then because of that, maybe Camp David was named after King David. Uh, makes sense, right? And I was going to report that to you, and then I did the research and realized, no, nah, it's not named after King David. <clears throat> Anybody know who Camp David's named after? David Eisenhower. Isn't that interesting that the president, uh, President Eisenhower, named Camp David? He kind of, he really wasn't interested in it. They were using it some, and he really wasn't interested. It's part of a military complex of some kind, and they built some cabins on it and made places to, for his family to go to and made places for them to, to kind of have meetings. And, and Ike kind of liked it, after all, and named it after his, literally, his little boy at the time. But can I say this to you? David Eisenhower would not be named David Eisenhower if not for King David. Find me a David before this David. Okay, and whether whether uh, whether they were thinking about King David or not, 
if your name is David, it had something to do with this guy. Did God make his name great? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, he did. Did David do that himself? That's the key. No. God made his name great. Now, but in verse 10, it becomes really clear, as Cindy was reading this, that the greatness that God is going to bestow on David was not for him alone. And there's, he's doing it for his people and for his own name. His greatness was not for his, his, uh, him alone. Look, I want to read 10 again, and then I'm going to append to it uh, verse 11. And then I'm going to ask somebody, if you will, to read verse 12 through 16, and we'll kind of begin to close up. But um, here's what he says. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel. I'll plant them that they may live in their own place, and they won't be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. So he's talking about vanquishing their enemies. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest... From all your enemies, great promise there, time of peace. The Lord also declares to you, so Nathan is reporting what God told him to say. The Lord also declares to you, what? I'm going to make a house for you. You catch this? David goes to God and says, actually to the preacher, Nathan, says, I'm going to build God a house. What do you think? Nathan says, great, until Nathan goes to bed. And God wakes him up and says, dude, you got a little hasty there. Follow this? God says, David, I don't need you to build me a house. I'm going to build a house for you. Okay, now in the back of your mind, you're thinking, wait a minute. Hiram, just build him build him a house. Why does he need another house? Okay. Not about that. We're going to see it. Uh, Who will go to verse 12 and read down through 16? Somebody? Karen, do it, please. I mean, this is an incredible promise. And you're going to stick with me for the next few minutes if we're going to, it, there's a little bit of tricky navigation we've got to do. So stick with me. I need us to go to a couple other places in a minute. Who will go to Hebrews 1, verse 5? You've got to hold on to it for a minute. Hebrews 1, verse 5. John, thank you. And um, somebody else, if you would, please go to Luke 1, and I want verse 32 and 33. Cindy, great. Okay, now here's what, here's what we're dealing with, okay? God has said here, David, I don't need you to build me a house right now. A tent for me is just fine, but I'm going to build you a house. And then he backs up a bit and begins to talk about the building of God's house. Okay, 
there will be a temple that comes, all right? And so he's going to deal here. God's going to tell David when and through whom his house will be built. What's the when? After you, okay, so it's going to be after you. Now, it will literally be the next king, which is his son Solomon. But David doesn't know anything about that. It's just God says, okay, I'll get a house built. Somebody will build a house for me. It won't be you. It'll be done after you're gone. Okay, so all right. Okay, don't have to worry about that much anymore. By the way, he still did worry about it. He, he put all kinds of materials together. He uh, had architects drop the plans. He called Fred Quinn. Yeah, okay. Fred. Would you, I don't know if you'd have built it quite like this, but, but it was quite a, quite a deal. Okay, now, so if the when was after David was gone, who is the who? By whom? Tricky, right? If you read the rest of it, kind of tricky because we know a little too much here. So I'm going to say first, so initially the idea of the building of the temple of God, it was going to be built by David's seed. Okay, it was going to be built, literally he's talking about Solomon here. Solomon's not on the scene yet, but David says, your son will build the temple. But then he begins to talk about his, this house that he's going to build for David. And so verse 13 is really critical. And verse 14 and 15 are really critical. And I want to go back to it. So God tells David when and through whom his house will be built. It'll be built after your days and your offspring are going to build it. At first, that's referring to Solomon. But then when you get to verse 13, kind of the picture changes a bit. Look at verse 13. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, one of the things that's kind of tricky about this is by the time that the New Testament dawns, there is not a son of David nor a son of Solomon on the throne in Israel. Who's on the throne in Israel when you start reading, by the way, the Gospel of Matthew? Herod the Great. I don't know what's so great about him, but okay. Herod the Great. Was Herod a son of David? Solomon? No. Anybody know who he was a son of? He was a son of Esau. He was a, I didn't mean to say that as snidely as I did, probably, but he was an Edomite. Okay? Uh, it was interesting. The king in Israel was not really an Israelite. Certainly not a Judean, as the promise had been. So what in the world, how is God going to live out his promise here? And I believe in verse 13 is the key. If you look at 13a, okay, the first part of 13, it's going to say, he shall build a house for my name. That might be talking about Solomon. Is that a capital H on E? Well, it's beginning with a sentence, so it's, it's tricky. But I'm going to establish his throne forever. That word forever is really key here. You can put that in the, in the parentheses there. The word forever is key absolutely key to the understanding of this. Okay, now, let's go to a couple of passages here and see something. Listen to what Luke says, what Dr. Luke says, as he's recording the angel Gabriel's visit to a virgin who will conceive and bear a son in Luke 1. Uh, John, is that the one you got, Luke 1, 32? Okay, uh, 
Cindy, thank you. 32 and 33. <laughs> does this do to you what it does to me? No wonder at Christmas time we use the word wonderful a lot. The son of David, yeah, he will establish his throne and he'll establish it forever. But not Solomon. And the angel speaks his name for the first time. Jesus. Look at um, John, you've got Hebrews 1.5. Uh, it's interesting to me uh, that the rest of this 14 and 15 are a little cryptic and it's like, okay, was he talking about Solomon? Was he talking about Jesus? Who's he talking about? But in Hebrews 1.5, there's at least a phrase or two that the Hebrews writer borrows from, Hebrews, from, um, from this chapter and kind of makes this connection. Hebrews 1.5. It's a direct quote from this chapter. The Hebrews writer believed that this was talking about your Savior. My Savior. The word that goes in the blank there is messianic. Good luck, uh, good luck spelling. Okay, messianic. This is clearly messianic. When uh, God is saying to David, "I'm going to build you an everlasting house. The house that God would build for David would be spiritual. It would be wonderful, and it would be enduring." The house that Solomon built didn't endure. The physical house that Solomon built for God did not endure. More so than anything David could build for God, God's going to build him for him a house, a lineage, a legacy to endure. 1970, in the fall of 1970, uh, about November 14th, so it's coming up. Uh, by the way, when I was working in Kentucky, I would cross the river for a couple of semesters and take classes at Marshall University, home of the thundering herd. Took some master's classes over there. Um, and, um, uh, and I was there in the, in the late 70s, early 80s, and so it was still kind of fresh in their mind what had happened. The Marshall University football team was returning from a game in North Carolina to the Marshall campus in Huntington, West Virginia. Been there a thousand times. The charter plane they were on crashed. You remember that story if you were living back then? Killing all 75 individuals on board. Those who perished included 37 players, head coach Rick Tolley, members of his coaching staff, the school's athletic director, 25 athletic boosters. And in 2006, so fast forward 36 years later, a movie is done about that tragedy. It was kind of the story, the theme of this tragedy. Uh, the title of it was brief, but really compelling. Do you remember what the title of the movie was? We Are Marshall. We Are Marshall. Can I tell you something? We Are Marshall, yeah. Can I say something to you this morning? We, we are David. We are David. We are David's house. So what goes in the last blank on your page, I will stand behind. 
because I, I love the word of God. David's house is the church. David's house is you and me. And here's what Jesus, the son of David said. The gates of hell won't prevail against it. When you read the newspaper, you got to be concerned like I am. But when you read the newspaper, could you just parrot back real quickly Jesus' words? The gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. We are David. Bless you. I will see you next week. We'll be in Nehemiah 8 and 9. See ya.